0: Well, welcome everybody. Page 16. 16 in your notebook. Everybody have a notebook? If you need one, we have some over here. I'll, I'll fetch one for you if you need it. All right, page 16. Before we get started, men, after we're done, uh, we've been requested to help stack chairs in the auditorium because we have a children's event on Saturday the Enchanted Trails of Trick or Treat event. And we need to clear out the auditorium of the uh, chairs. So we need to stack chairs. We can get it done literally in 10 minutes. That's my reminder to announce stacking chairs. So let's try to remember that after we're done to uh, to do that staircase chair stacking. Yeah. Yeah, somebody else can set one. Go ahead, set one. All right, page 16 in our introduction to the uh, Reformation class and in these fourth first four weeks, this is the fifth, uh, we're trying to lay the groundwork for the roots that gave rise to the Reformation that occurred in the year 1517. So this year is the 500th anniversary of that, and there was uh, then 1,500 years preceding, a lot of things had happened to set the stage for the Reformation and help explain why the Reformation spread as quickly as as it did. So what developed in the church uh, during its first several uh, centuries was a concentration of power in the Bishop of Rome that ultimately became the, uh, the papacy. And we've reviewed some of the reasons why that happened. I'll just quickly list those again. You had the fact that Rome was a prestigious city within Christianity from its very beginnings because... Both Peter and Paul uh, ministered there. You have the most doctrinally laden book in the New Testament, uh, the Book of Romans, was written to that city. Of course, Rome was the capital of the empire, so that gave it great prestige. Then in the year 330, Constantine the emperor moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople. But by that time, the Bishop of Rome had already acquired some prestige, and that move left a vacuum of power that the Bishop of Rome assumed. So he became even more powerful. And then there were the exploits of the various bishops of Rome uh, themselves. Some of them were very, very, very capable leaders, and so that enhanced the prestige of, of Rome. Later to be called the Pope. So I keep saying the Bishop of Rome but later to be called the Pope. Latin is Papa. It means father. So in Roman Catholicism, you have priests referred to as father. But most often, the Pope is referred to as the Holy Father. So he's a father, but he's a father. Holy means set apart. So he's a father also, but he's a father set apart. And the term Pope, the title Pope means means father. So today we're going to continue now to see that. We're going to see the power of the papacy and how that helped create roots that gave rise to the Reformation uh, many years later. Page 16, Lesson 6. You see at the top of page 16 it says Section 3, Medieval Church History. So this is a new section. This is starting a new section. Uh, The first uh, two sections were ancient uh, uh, church history from uh, 33 Uh, 33 AD to 313, 312, and then 313 to 590, and now 590 to when the Reformation starts, medieval church history. And I say at the top of page 16, we Americans often take for granted the many benefits of our political system. Among these is freedom of worship without government coercion or interference. But such freedom of religion, or sometimes called from religion, is virtually unknown elsewhere. In fact, throughout history, an alliance between the religious order and the state has been assumed. The relationship between the church and the state that existed during the Middle Ages, and that's generally 500 to 1500, the, uh, the Middle Ages, so the period really that we're looking at, The relationship between the church and the state that existed during the Middle Ages is one that had developed over a long period of time. With the coronation of Charlemagne in the year 800, the culmination of this long period of evolution had been accomplished. And the stage was set for several centuries that followed of extraordinary ecclesiastical power. Ecclesiastical means church so, extraordinary church power exercised by the popes of the Roman Catholic Church. So, this lesson will trace that development and its impact upon the subsequent history of Christianity. So, that paragraph mentions the coronation of Charlemagne. And the first point I have on page 16 is the significance of Charlemagne's um, coronation. Charlemagne. Uh, the name is actually Charles. <clears throat> And the title is Charles the Magnificent. So Charlemagne means Charles the, the Magnificent. And it was in the year uh, eight uh, 800 that this coronation occurred. And what was important about it? Well, the role that the Pope played in coronating a, a new king. Charlemagne was crowned, I say, in the middle there by the Pope, symbolizing the conference of power on the magistrate by the church. So this was new. There had been lesser, in just a few years prior, there had been some lesser uh, figures that had been crowned by Popes, but this one was Charles the Magnificent in a magnificent ceremony in Rome with the Pope crowning him so it was very visible uh very obvious that the pope was exercising secular power not just spiritual power now secular power in determining who's going to be uh, the next king of the what became the holy roman empire and that set a precedent then for years to come i quote uh, mark Knoll there you see in that next paragraph the turning point that charlemagne's coronation represents in the history of christianity is not on the same order as the council of nicaea or the founding of the monasteries if the events on christmas day in the year 800 had not happened much the same results would probably have marked the development of christianity in the middle ages at the same time however the event was a dramatic symbol of relationships that were undergoing permanent change it stood for a new form of christian existence that was replacing the Christianity passed on from the time of Constantine or even Benedict. This event also anticipated the future. For the way the great King Charles and the Pope, as the supreme head of the Western Church, conducted their business on that fateful Christmas day, outlined the shape of Christian life in the West for at least the next seven or eight centuries. So it's a really big deal that the king was coronated by the Pope and that set then a precedent as they say here for uh, years to come. Now here's another factor that I want you to know about that before we move on. And that is that Charlemagne's palace was located in uh, Germany. So he's from Germany and he comes to Rome to be coronated. Now, You remember where the Protestant Reformation started? Germany. And we're going to see Germany show up again in a bit. And what you'll start to see developing is the Pope exercising power over these nation-states and creating a resentment. At this point, Charlemagne's glad to have his approval. But over time, that's going to come to be resented. So this was in uh, Germany... And we'll see Germany showing up again. Whoever that is, if that's God calling, answer it. If it's uh, caller ID, says heaven, you can get it. All right. Nobody's admitting who it is, are they? <laughs> <laughs> who is it? oh, oh, it's you. All right. Well, on page, if you look on page 17, and down toward the bottom of page 17 and number 3, you see that one, Penance. <laughs> <laughs> That one's for you, Bill, for having the uh, for having the phone ring. Penance. All right, we'll talk about it. All right. <laughs> That's my phone going yeah. off. Oh. <laughs> oh. You can pay me the indulgence. <laughs> it says we need to stack shares after we're uh, done with this class. Okay? What timing. <laughs> exactly yeah that was a sign from the lord wasn't it all right so with that we've got the continuing rise of the pope the power of the pope the papacy bottom of page 16 and i mentioned to you that one of the reasons that that happened is because after the death of the apostles who are you going to turn to in order to unify the church in the face of persecution in order to correct heresies, false teachings within the church. So that's what's meant by post-apostolic confusion. You just got the normal problems that go on in churches, false teaching, uh, opposition in the form of persecution. But with the death of the apostles, who are you going to turn to for for that? So the role of post-apostolic fathers became crucial to the survival of the fledgling church. So the post-apostolic fathers, I've mentioned some of those, Polycarp, um, Clement of Rome. These were associates of the apostles and they became known as the uh, apostolic fathers. People turned to them for leadership and then over time the bishop of Rome in particular gained prestige. And then there was the way the popes saw, them, saw themselves. <clears throat> Top of page 16, another quote from Mark Knowles' book, Turning Points. Like Leo, he... Galatius, another pope in the late uh, 6th century or late 5th century, took pains to define the nature of church authority, ecclesiastical authority. In a widely cited letter, he expounded the theory that of the two legitimate powers God had created to rule the world, the spiritual power, which the pope represented, held primacy over the secular whenever the two conflicted. So here's, here's now the pope saying, You've got two powers. You've got the secular power and you've got the spiritual power. And whenever there's a conflict between the two, the spiritual power, that would be me, the Pope, uh, takes takes precedence. So the rise of the papacy was for all the reasons that I've given. Then popes began to see themselves in a self-identified kind of way as this uh, this power that was uh, God-ordained. And then you have As I said, some of the popes were just really uh, capable people. They were terrific leaders. And one of those is listed on page uh, 17. The exploits of Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great. And let me read for you a little bit about Gregory the Great from, again, uh, Mark Noll. The summit of the early papacy reached was reached in the pontificate of Gregory the Great from 590 to 604, who along with Leo is often styled the Great, Gregory the Great, Leo the Great. He was born a noble Roman, but after founding several monasteries, eventually joined one himself where he became renowned for his sanctity and sagacity, his wisdom. This reputation led the Pope to call Gregory into diplomatic service on behalf of the church and eventually brought him to the papal chair itself. He became the Pope. The list of his energetic accomplishments is breathtaking. Not only did he oversee Roman defenses against the attacks of invaders, carry out complicated negotiations with the Roman emperor in Constantinople, Reform the finances of the church, and reorganized the boundaries and responsibilities of Western dioceses. And so those are areas within the domain of the church. Not only did he do all that, he also was a passionate student of scripture and formidable worship, uh, reformer of worship. His own biblical expositions, especially a commentary on the book of Job, became staples of study throughout the entire Middle Ages and beyond. Their threefold method of studying the Bible likewise established an enduring standard. He wrote a book called The Life of Benedict that gave monastic ideals a major boost in the Western Church. His writings on the duties of bishops highlighted the care of souls as the key activity for all pastors. He reformed liturgical uses at his worship and regularized the celebrations of the Christian year. His efforts in promoting music in the church... Lent his name to the plain song Gregorian chants. You guys have ever heard that, Gregorian chants. It's named after this guy that still influenced sacred music. And he was highly regarded as a preacher, especially for his ability to apply the balm of the gospel to the many tumults and disasters of his time. And it could go on with regard to Gregory. So he was a uh, a great uh, personality. He was a great uh, leader. And so you got people like that occupying, the seat in Rome, and you can see why that continues to then enhance the um, the prestige of the papacy. And then, in addition to that, there is the doctrine of uh, papal infallibility. Papal infallibility. Now, it was not declared a dogma, that is, an authoritative teaching that must be believed if you're going to be a faithful Roman Catholic the infallibility of the pope was not declared until the year 1870. 1870. It's not all that long ago, historically speaking. Um, But, even though it was not declared to them, it was part of a larger and older notion, not of the infallibility of the pope, but the infallibility of the church, with the pope as its highest representative. So even before the infallibility of the pope, was declared dogma. For a long time, the church had claimed infallibility for itself as a whole. Now, how would this infallibility show up? It would show up in the decisions of church councils. And in particular, particular, a a kind of church council called an ecumenical council. Ecumenical means uh, a council representing the entire church. And so they would have these, from time to time, councils called by the Pope. The earliest councils were actually called by the emperor. Remember, the council at Nicaea was called by Constantine. But these were ecumenical councils where bishops from all over the world were to come and they were to discuss and decide an issue. And then whatever they ended up decreeing was considered by the church to be infallible. No one, It's truth. No one can uh, disregard it. No one can go against it. So it was only later that the papacy was declared to be infallible in itself when the pope speaks ex cathedra. That's Latin for from the chair of of Peter. Now, one of the places, in fact, one of the main places they get this, we know they get the papacy from thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus said that in uh, Matthew 16. But the idea of the church itself being infallible comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read it for you, and then I'd like to talk about it for a bit. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. This is Paul then writing to Timothy and says to Timothy, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth. So it's referring to the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, Uh, if you hang around on Sunday mornings during second hour and go through Master Plan for Life with us, which I encourage you to do, then in a few months we'll get to the doctrine of the church. And One of the things we will learn there is that in the Bible the word church is used two ways in the New Testament, two ways. Sometimes, a handful of times, it's used to refer to something called the universal church. The universal church. That refers to, the word church means the called out ones. Those who are called out of the world and to God. That's what the word church means. Universal church means then, all of those who are called out of the world and to God, all over the world. Wherever they are. So whatever country they're in, whatever denomination they are, if someone is truly born again, if someone is truly... In the family of God, they're part of the universal church. And sometimes in scripture, church is used that way, to refer to everybody in the body of Christ. But then another way that's used, and the most often way that it is used, overwhelmingly the most often way, is to refer to a local church. That is, called out ones, the church, but in a particular location. And so we use that term, the local church, universal church, local church. All right, so here you've got what I read. If I'm delayed, I want you to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So what is that referring to? Is that referring to the universal church or is it referring to the local church? And uh, it turns out, and I'll explain why. It's referring, believe it or not, to the local church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, how do I know this? Because verse 14 that I read at the beginning says, Though I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that. You'll know how people ought to conduct themselves. In the God's household, Church of the Living God, pillar and foundation of the church. So what are these instructions? I'm writing you these instructions so that you'll know how to do this. What are these instructions? Well, he's already given instructions. This is chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. But going back to chapter 2, if you go back to chapter 2, and actually verse 1, all the way to the beginning, uh, in your Bible, many of your Bibles, like mine, it has a title for that section that starts in chapter 2. And the title in mind says Instructions on Worship. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 is now going to give you instructions on worship. And it says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, and so on. So instructions for worship. And in continuing to give those instructions for worship, when you get down to verse 9 of chapter 2, uh, it talks about women and their role in, in worship. <coughs> And verse 11 continues that, women's role in in worship. Then you come to chapter 3 and verse 1. And it begins with, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, a pastor, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer, the pastor, must be above reproach, husband of one wife, and all the way down through verse 7, it gives qualifications for being a pastor. Then you get to verse 8 in chapter 3 and it says deacons likewise and then gives qualifications for deacons. And then you get to verse 11 and it gives qualifications for the deacons' wives. Then in verse 12 comes back to the deacons. So what you've got so far when he says, Paul says, I'm writing you these instructions, instructions on worship. Prayers should be given for kings and all those in authority. Role of women in in work, public worship, qualifications for pastors, deacons, deacon's wives, and then we come full circle to where we started. Verse fourteen of chapter three: I am writing you these instructions. I'm telling you this stuff so people, so you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So, what church are we talking about? Where what church has pastors and deacons and deacon's wives? What church gathers for worship, so that prayers are given for kings and all those authority? That never happens with the universal church. First time that'll ever happens when we're all in heaven together. And the universal church is gathered in one locale, namely, the New Jerusalem. Okay, but outside of that, this is all local. This is all local church stuff. Now I go through all of that so that you know how important in Scripture the local church is. I mean, think about those titles: God's household. So Community Bible Church is God's household. The church of the living God and the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's heady stuff, isn't it? We cannot treat then the church lightly. Though it's popular in our day for people to say, you know, I'm down with Jesus, but I don't care for the church. Well, you can't be down with Jesus and not care about the church. It's his church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, the Bible says. And the local expression of his church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So I'm telling us that because sometimes in reaction to the the extreme claims of Roman Catholicism, we Protestants sometimes minimize the importance of the church. But the church and the local church is extremely, extremely important to God. All right. But that's where they get, the Roman Catholics then get, this idea in that phrase, the pillar and foundation of the truth, that we are the ones who give truth. So when these ecumenical councils now, (laughs) and they give truth, this is infallible. This is, the institution that god has ordained to be the pillar and foundation of the truth now what would you say to that i'm going to tell you what i say to that in a second but what would you say to that first timothy three fifteen says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth so when we get together and we pronounce these things then it's got god's stamp of approval it's infallible what would you say is it it's the word in your book what's that it's the pillar and foundation of the truth we're the pillar and foundation of the word of god which is truth that doesn't mean we just get to come up with our own truth. We go, oh, well, we're the church. Okay. So we're yeah, that's really good, Tony. That's really good. Really, I'm not kidding. That's really good. <laughs> no, that is good. And you, but well, you were you were saying, Aaron? I, I said the word. You said the it, word it, it, right. So if you're not teaching what's wrote in the book, then you know you're a hypocrite or whatever, and you should go. So because it's not the truth. Okay. So let's make sure we're clear here. I think I understood what you were saying, and and both of you that. 1 Timothy 3.15 is not referring to the Bible. When it says the pillar and foundation of the truth, it's referring to the church, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. But the truth is not the church. The truth is found somewhere else that the church is the foundation and support of. So the church doesn't define truth. The church does Nothing in 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church defines truth or even originates truth. But rather, it supports truth the truth that already exists as a foundation and and pillar. So, yeah, it is the word of God. That is the truth. Jesus said, John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy, your word is truth. Your word is truth. And then the church has a crucial role now to play in upholding that truth. But we don't get to make up new truth. We don't get to come up with other stuff like there's a guy who's infallible in the year 1870, as long as he's sitting in the chair. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, that's the only perfect one, only infallible one is Jesus. We don't get to make up some of the other things that I mentioned to you a few weeks ago. You know, 1854, that uh, Mary was immaculately conceived. You can't find that. You can't find that in the Bible. But in Roman Catholicism, you don't have to. That's what's what's important for us to know. That this then led, was one of the major things that led to the Protestant Reformation. Is that within Roman Catholicism, you didn't and you still do not have to have warrant in the Bible for the truth claims that are made. The church can make its own truth claims. And those are equal in authority to the Bible. So when an ecumenical council gets together and makes these pronouncements, or the Pope from the chair says, Mary was immaculately conceived, so when she was conceived in her mother, St. Anne, there is no St. Anne in the Bible, Roman Catholic or Protestant Bible. There is no St. Anne. Uh, but they tradition has it that her mother was St. Anne, And that St. Anne conceived uh, Mary without the stain of original sin. And then from that, from the Immaculate Conception, a number of other things flow. That she didn't have the stain of original sin. So she came into the world without the guilt of Adam and without the sin nature that Adam had. And she never sinned. The sinlessness of Mary. That Mary never sinned. Then further. 1950. So that's within some of our lifetimes, 1950. From the chair, the assumption of Mary, that she was assumed bodily into heaven without ever her body having decayed. So do you see a parallel here? There's almost an exact parallel between Jesus and Mary. And all of this without the benefit of Scripture, as you look in the Bible and what it says about Mary, there's not a whole lot there. What's there is important, of course. But there's just not a whole lot there. So they don't get it from the Bible and most often don't claim to get it from the Bible. Now there are some, there are some Roman Catholics who say, no, we got to get this out of the Bible. And they try to. And it's pitiful. As they try to squeeze stuff I just said out of the Bible because it ain't there. It ain't there to be found. So, but they don't need to because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth defined by them as the truth can define truth, can proclaim truth, and can um, and promote new truth even. So the doctrine of papal infallibility then developed later, but the prestige of the Bishop of Rome was already taking hold in the first centuries of the church. All right, with that, in addition, you have first third of page 17, the south rises again. And what I mean by that is you have Islam, the threat of Islam, and Islam, of course, started in Saudi Arabia. And the spread of Islam coming from Saudi Arabia, going into the Middle East, across the Mediterranean, into Europe, was a gigantic threat. And this gigantic threat ended up Um, enhancing the power of, of the papacy so I want us to see what happened between the 6th century the 500's and 1870 when papal infallibility was declared to further enhance the power and prestige of the Pope and one of those was the threat of Islam now let me remind you of the history of Islam quickly we've got a class on Islam next door So this is not a class on that, just quickly. Seventh century is when uh, Islam develops. Muhammad, who started Islam, was born in the year 570, 570. So Muhammad is a contemporary of Gregory the Great. Remember, Gregory the Great was Pope, I've got it for you there, 590 to 604. So at the same time Gregory is the Pope, you've got Muhammad born in the year 570 and then uh, receives his revelation from the angel Gabriel to write down uh, what Gabriel is telling him, which became the Quran. So the Quran is much different than the Bible in that the Bible was written over many years and has a lot of historical references to it that you can check for accuracy. You can't check anything for accuracy in the Quran, Because it was written all at one time by one guy. So you either believe it or you don't. You either take it or you don't. But he got his revelations uh, from the angel Gabriel, says Islam. That's what became the Quran. He developed the following in and around Mecca in Saudi Arabia. So sometimes we say, you know, we'll refer to, you know, going to a special place as going to Mecca um, because that's the most holy place in, in Islam. And a faithful Muslim, followers of Islam are Muslims, or Muslims, and they are to try in their lifetime to make a pilgrimage to, to Mecca, if at all possible. In the year 622... Muhammad and his followers were kicked out of Medina, or excuse me, out of Mecca. And they fled, they left, and went to another town called Medina. While in Medina, Muhammad continued to attract followers and became popular enough that just eight years later, he had a triumphal return to Mecca. So he returns to Mecca and he's welcomed there. He dies two years later in the year uh, 632. Now that uh, event of Muhammad being and his followers being kicked out of Mecca, going to Medina, uh, that's called Muhammad's flight to Medina. Uh, and that year 622 starts the Muslim calendar. So if the Muslims use the same calendar we did, we do then you would be able to know uh, what the Muslim year is by taking your current year, 2017, and subtracting 622. The problem is their, their calendar is a little bit different. Instead of 365 days, they go by a lunar calendar that has 354 days. So over time, then, uh, we have more years than than they do. Or they've got more years than we do, I should say. So, But you'll get roughly how many years... Uh, what year you're in for the uh, Islamic year if you subtract 622 from the current year, 1517. So after Muhammad, he dies in 632, conquests of countries by Islamic forces took place uh, in great numbers and uh, over many civilizations. In fact, as far into Europe... As France. So if you, we don't have a map up here, but if you know your geography a little bit, Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, as far as France, and you are on the move. Uh, Spain and Gibraltar, the Rock of Gibraltar in Spain, that name, Spain is named after in fact in arabic gib gib is rock and gibraltar is named uh, the rock of tariq tar gibraltar the guy who was the muslim leader who conquered that area so you got spain you got france in the year 732 732. A guy named Charles Martel. Charles Martel was the grandfather of Charlemagne. Charlemagne's grandfather goes to battle against the uh, against the Muslims in France as they're continuing to advance. He defeats them, thankfully. That stopped the advance of. Islam conquering all these countries. After that, they didn't conquer any any more countries. But it took centuries for them to be removed primarily from uh, Western Europe. If Charles Martel had not stopped them, we would be speaking Arabic. I mean, you know, the history of the world would have been different. So the history of the world sometimes hinges just on you know, one event and, and one battle, and that was a gigantic, a gigantic one. So you have you have all that happening. Now, how does that matter for the papacy and, and for the Reformation? Well, you have the establishment, middle of page 17, of Christendom. In response to the real threat of Islamic conquest, an alliance between pope and ruler developed. The ultimate result was the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire, an intimate cooperation between church and state. So we're being overrun. We've got these outside forces coming in. And you already had the rising power of the papacy going on, as I've talked about. Now the pope and the secular state joined forces in order to protect Western civilization, in order to protect the Europe, in order to protect the church. And so that further established the power of the Pope. So what was life in this now kingdom? I have kingdom in quotes there. This is not the kingdom according to the Bible, but it was the kingdom according to Roman Catholicism. That the church is the kingdom, and the church is establishing the kingdom on earth. Well, you have the primacy of the church, The church was everything in an individual's life. uh, Going from beginning of life to end of life. As seen in the sacraments, which I have listed for you there on page 17, that's the exercise of primacy. So you have the primacy of the church. And how does that primacy look in the life of a regular person? Well, it looks like the sacraments. It looks like these seven sacraments, which are still the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And when I say they go from birth to death, literally, you see the first six there, it starts with with baptism. So in Roman Catholicism, an infant is born, that infant is baptized into the church to have the stain of original sin washed away. That's Roman Catholic. Now, this idea of baptizing infants uh, does not come from the Bible. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. You don't have infants baptized in the Bible. Um, But one of the claims that's made by advocates of infant baptism is that what you do have in the Bible is something called household baptism. That is, you do have these references in the Bible to so and so was baptized and his house and his household. So the assumption is that the household must have included some babies. There's no explicit uh, statement to that effect, but it's just and the and the household. But and and most of the time, when that's said, it just says what I said: so and so was baptized and his household. But you've got some occasions where you have a little bit of explanation about what happened there. Let me give you one. In Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16 and verse 30, Acts 16 and verse 30. The jailer brought Paul and Silas out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this is the jailer in the Philippian jail, jail in Philippi, where Paul and his companion Silas had been thrown in prison. Uh, God causes an earthquake to to occur. Their shackles are removed. The jailer is scared to death. And he says, "Uh, what do I got to do? And they say in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Then, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. So who were these people getting baptized? These were people who heard the word of the Lord. And they responded to the word of the Lord. So there weren't, that in that instance at least, it tells you something about who the people were in the family and the household. And these were people who were able to hear the word of the Lord and respond to it, not infants. So that is why, as we're going to see, as we get into the Reformation, that one of the issues that came out of that was that some <clears throat> that later became the Baptists said, you only baptize believers. It became known as believers' baptism. You only baptize people who have the ability to hear and and to believe. I'm not going to say anything about that. I guess I just did, didn't I? I'm afraid to say anything because now my phone's going to go off again if I, if I do. All right, so, but, you know, right at the beginning, you got baptism, then you got confirmation. Which is the coming of age. Then you've got penance. Ongoing. In one's life. Confession of sin. To a priest. Eucharist. Or the mass. Ongoing. Weekly. Atonement for sin. Atonement for sin. Now. What atones for sin? What covers sin? The blood of Christ, right? But see, in the Mass, which is celebrated at the Eucharist, in the Mass, in Roman Catholicism, Jesus is re-crucified. There's a re-crucifixion of Christ. And your sins from the last time that you had Mass are covered. Now think about that. In Roman Catholicism, you have to have your sins covered by participating in Mass. So if you have Mass, and then a day later you're hit by a truck and you die, but you've committed sin in between, what happens to you? I paid my indulgence, though. Yeah, purgatory, All right, so Aaron says, I paid for my indulgence. But an indulgence, that we'll see later. An indulgence doesn't forgive your sin. An indulgence simply absolves you of some of the uh, temporal punishment for that sin. Your punishment in going to penance might be, say, 15 Hail Marys. An indulgence says you don't have to do the 15 Hail Marys. Okay. And I That's thought what you paid your indulgence and you could go out on the weekend. No. Oh, okay. No. No. okay. <laughs> now, I, I learned yeah. that when you get the indulgence, yeah. that is applied to your time in purgatory. Well, it depends on what kind of indulgence you get. Well, there's plenary and... Okay, exactly. we got different kinds of indulgences. You know, you got to pay for different kinds. All right? But we'll get to indulgences later, okay? <laughs> so... But from one week to the next, with regard to the mass, you have mass, you get your sins covered. A day later, you get hit by the truck. What happens to you? Do you go to heaven? Maybe. Depends on what kind of sin you committed. Mm -hmm. Did you commit a venial sin or a mortal sin? A venial sin is just your garden variety sort of sin. (laughs) A mortal sin, (laughs) according to Roman Catholicism, Mortal, mortality, is one that threatens death for the soul. So something like murder is a mortal sin. So, if a Roman Catholic commits suicide, in Roman Catholic theology, what happens? No hope in Roman Catholicism. Because that's a murder, that's a mortal sin, that has no opportunity to be covered. So in Roman Catholicism, your sins are not covered past, present, and future by the blood of Jesus. And that's why there must be the ongoing participation participation in Mass. Now, I'm belaboring this because it would be really important with regard to the power of the papacy and how that gave rise to the Reformation. Sir? But they also have a doctrine where I think you get it from the books of Apocrypha where they have a mass for the dead. A mass for the dead. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, And there are lots of things that can be done for the dead. <laughs> Prayers can be done for the dead. Money can be given for the dead. And when all of these good works are done on behalf of the dead, then a withdrawal is made I'm not making this, I know it sounds like I'm making it up. I'm not making it up. <laughs> a withdrawal is made out of something called the treasury of merit. That's a thing. The treasury of merit. You can Google all the stuff I'm telling you. The treasury of merit is like, figuratively, like a chest, an account, where the merits, the good works of Christ of Mary of all the saints the good works that are done on behalf of someone these are all in the treasury of merit and then there are things that can be done on earth to make withdrawals out of that which can then cut down on someone's time in purgatory wow this is all through the treasury of merit well, really don't teach the Catholic. I know more about Roman Catholicism than the average Roman Catholic. Is. I was raised Catholic. I was Catholic. I was 20. So yeah. my aunt, when they're we trying, I've tried to have conversations with her. She's like, oh, no, we don't believe that. And I'm like, mm, you might want to look this up. Yeah, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And and where do you look it up? So you can look it up. You can Google it, okay? But there's a thing called the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church. I've got a copy. It's that big. Okay. Yeah, it Nineteen ninety four they did an updated version of the catechism. All the stuff I'm telling you is in the catechism. Okay? Nineteen ninety four. So this is not I mean it started centuries ago, but it is still applicable today. Nineteen ninety-four, latest version, Treasury of Merit, all of that is in there. Okay. So you've got that ongoing marriage, the creation of a family, extreme unction, sometimes called last rites so that's when someone's dying a priest is called to administer last rites so this is to then cover the person for anything that they might have on their account before they die and then there's ordination ordination is the one of the seven that cannot be participated by every roman catholic only those who are going into the priesthood ministry but This is the sacrament that perpetuates the hierarchy in the church that provides the other six. So all seven of these then, I want you to note this about all seven of these. They are under the control of the church. That's the key thing. They are all under the control of the church. So someone from cradle to grave is under the control of the church. In Roman Catholicism, for their salvation, for their relationship with God. Cradle to grave. All right, page 18 then. So now, with all that going on, we still have not hit the zenith of the power of the Pope, Yet, I mean, it seems powerful enough, but now what we're going to look at is how very powerful it became and how that power was exercised. Top of page 18, one of the most momentous events of church history is the official separation of the eastern and western branches of the church. These branches, known as Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, respectively, had been at odds for centuries prior to what's called the Great Schism of the year 1054. Many of the issues in the controversy were quite trivial. In point of fact, the real issue was and is one of power and authority. So what were the issues in the East-West controversy? Well, these are the ostensibly, here are the issues. One is the filioque clause. What does that What does that mean? Uh, It's referring to a statement in the Nicene Creed. I'll read you the statement. The statement from the Nicene Creed says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's it. It's the and the Son piece. That is the controversy. So the church in the West said, yes, that's right the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Church in the East says, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father. That doesn't sound like a big deal to you. Good for you. I'm just telling you, these were the ostensible issues. The iconoclastic controversy, icons, pictures, images. um, And the Eastern Church said, no, there can't be any of these. The Western Church said yes, as we know in Roman Catholicism, there are images and there are statues and all of that. The Eastern Church, uh, partly the reason they felt this so keenly in Constantinople, that's where the headquarters was and is of the Eastern Orthodox Church, now Istanbul, uh, is because the presence of Muslims in the East was so pronounced. And Muslims were accusing Christians of idolatry. So those in the East felt that keenly and uh, wanted to get rid of, and did get rid of, the icons. So that was part of it. A language barrier in the Roman Catholic Church it was Latin, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, it was Greek. Clerical celibacy, Eastern Orthodox can get married, in the Western Church, they cannot. So those were some of the ostensible issues. In the year 1054, the Great Schism, as it's called in church history, occurred. It was a split when the heads of the two churches mutually excommunicated each other. So they mutually said, you're not part of the church. The others said, you're not part of the church. And they went their separate ways. And so you had established then the Eastern Orthodox Church and... Uh, Roman Catholicism with the Pope in Rome. You have uh, Eastern Orthodoxy with headquartered in what was then Constantinople, what is now Istanbul, Turkey. Eastern Orthodox, and then you have its ethnic derivatives. So you see churches called the Russian Orthodox or the Hungarian Orthodox that's, that's related to the overall Orthodox Church but just ethnic versions of that. But the real causes were political rivalry and the claims of the papacy. Claims of the papacy. Let me talk about those claims. So the bishop of Rome, the pope, has power for reasons that I've given. But that power was enhanced immeasurably by something that almost very few people know anything about it. so again google to check on it okay but there's a thing called the pseudo Isidorian decretals pseudo what pseudo mean false right isidorian there were these false documents that were written under the name of someone named isidore Pseudo-Isidorian decretals or decrees so this is a collection of documents called that Pseudo-Isidorian decretals a collection of documents that made claims that previous emperors and kings had given land and power to the pope one of the documents in the pseudo isidorian decretals is called the Donation of Constantine. In fact, it's the most famous one among the collection. The Donation of Constantine. We know who Constantine was, right? The claim is that when Constantine was alive, remember he lived in the 300s, the 4th century, that when he was alive, he had bequeathed, and remember he was the Roman emperor, He had bequeathed large swaths of land and power to the Pope. And these documents held sway for centuries. It wasn't until the year 1440, 1440, that a guy named Lorenzo Valla was able to prove that these were forgeries. Roman Catholics admit that they are forgeries. It's not known exactly who, who forged them. But they enhanced the power of the papacy immensely. Because for centuries it was thought that emperors had given all this stuff to. At one point it said that the Roman Catholic Church owned a quarter of all the land in Europe. You wonder where all the money comes from. You know, I mean, and I don't mean this to be flippant, but you know, all of these uh, sex scandal things, and you hear all these settlements that were made by dioceses all over the country, and then in other countries, Mm -hmm. it's amazing the amounts of money that have been paid out, and you wonder where that money came from. So, the Roman Catholic Church has amassed just amazing, amazing amounts of money. One of the ways that happened was through things like this. Mm -hmm. So, it's admitted by everybody now, Catholics and Protestants alike, that these are forgeries. It's been proven. But the damage is done. It's kind of like a politician, you know, who gets money from somebody that turns out to be a crook. They get elected. Then somebody says, hey, you got money from somebody who's a crook. They say, "Oh, I'll give the money back. (laughs) Yeah, but you've already been elected. The damage has already been done. You've already accrued all of this power. But that is a major way in which that happened. Which then led to the zenith of papal power the height of papal power and that is on the next couple of pages but well, you'll just have to wait until next week okay because it is i got two minutes and we won't be able to finish in two minutes mm-hmm. so lord willing we'll see you next week.